0: We ready for ya. What's up, guys? It's Mama Mystery. I am your host, Kelly, and it is Super Bowl Sunday.
1: Go Kansas City Chiefs. I am your co-host, Austin.
0: Um, I realize most of you are going to be listening to this on Monday, but we are going to record it now before the Super Bowl.
1: And some of you Patreons might get to listen to it early because that's a feature you get when you pay to play.
0: That's right. And all
1: you got to pay is a few bucks a month. Yeah. Thought oh, that's commercial. It's really,
0: <laughs> really not much. But uh, anyway, this case that we are going to be covering today was recommended by one of our listeners. Her name is Lydia. So thank you, Lydia.
1: Thanks a million, Lydia.
0: Before we get started, I do just want to talk a little bit about our Patreon because we don't really talk about it a whole lot. Like we mention it here and there, but for those of you who don't know what it is, because a lot of you don't know what Patreon even is, um, it is a website and app that you as listeners can use to donate towards your favorite content creators and in return get special benefits. So we have a couple different membership levels and they start at like five bucks a month. And you get benefits like ad-free episodes, early releases of our episodes, the full script, and fun things like bonus episodes and cool custom-made stickers that I designed myself. So this is basically a way to just show your appreciation for your favorite content creators and then have that appreciation reciprocated. And I wanted to add that my intention here is to grow this podcast and eventually be able to buy better, more high-quality microphones and I'd like to eventually be able to dedicate more time to this podcast, so with your generous support, those dreams become a reality, and I really do appreciate it.
1: I wondered if you were going to start crying.
0: No, I'm not actually crying. I'm, She's I'm crying. Really we're going to pause actor,
1: everything, so. guys, real quick. She's crying.
0: Like I'm really, really good. Did I fool you? <clears throat> no. So anyway, um, enough about that. We are going to talk about... The White House Farm Murders.
1: Ooh, Pennsylvania Avenue, the White House, huh? No. Okay.
0: Not even close, actually. This is another case from across the pond over in Essex, England in 1985. I don't even know what that actually Tell
1: was. the whole story in that.
0: I can't. I can't do that.
1: I'm going to it talk like very this. very annoying. I'm going to talk like this the whole episode.
0: I hope that you do cuz you don't talk a whole lot so it would be more appropriate if you did it like understand. it would be more tolerable if you did it I think
1: understand
0: So anyway our last episode was on Becky Watts and she was from Bristol which is only about 3 hours a 3 hour drive from Not Essex.
1: Bristol Florida
0: Yeah is there even a Bristol Florida? I feel like there's like a Bristol Tennessee cuz isn't there like a NASCAR race That's what I keep thinking of the NASCAR race Maybe I don't know I don't know where it's at. Anyway. Who cares? <laughs> we start out with June and Neville Bammer. And it's spelled B-A-M-B-E-R, but they're, they're English, so they Bammer. say Fama. Anyway, Neville was born in 1924, and he was a farmer, formal Royal Air Force pilot, and he was very well respected in the community. He was known as a down to earth, super easygoing guy. He also served as a local magistrate for the Witham Magistrates Court, Magistrates, whatever. I learned that the legal system over there allows regular people without any type of like degree or certification in law to weigh in on issues in the courts. So it's like being a member of a jury, but instead of one case, you get to weigh in on a bunch of cases. That's how I understood it anyway. If I'm wrong, please kindly correct me. But anyway, I just thought that sounds like a good job for me. It's
1: kind of interesting.
0: Yeah. Um, anyway, Neville was a really big guy. He stood about 6'4", and was described as well-built and in very good physical health big guy. Neville married his wife June in 1949 and they moved into the beautiful Georgian White House farm on Pages Lane. The farm sat on 300 acres of land that belonged to June's father. June was super religious, like her religious was incredibly, her Her religion was very important to her. And she was more quiet and shy than Neville. And June struggled with depression. In the 1950s, she was admitted to a psychiatric hospital, and she was given electroshock therapy at least six times. So, electric shock therapy, I I just looked this up because I was curious about it. I was going to ask you, so it's a good thing. Yeah, so they would... From what I understand, it's, like, this outdated practice, and they would hook up these, like, electrodes to your head and essentially, like, force seizures on your brain in an attempt to, like, reset the electric, like, chemistry of your brain.
1: Do they still do this? They
0: still do it, but only in, like, the most extreme circumstances when other um, treatments don't seem to work. But the fact that she had it at least six times, that's a lot.
1: Sounds pretty intense.
0: Yeah, super intense. So, anyway, you can just imagine, though, what that would do to somebody's, like, psyche. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, the Bammers were uh, very financially secure. They owned the farmhouse and then all that acreage, another property in London, and they also ran this, like, campsite, which apparently still functions to this day. But one major thing was missing from June and Neville's life, and that was having their own family. So, June and Neville really wanted to have kids, but unfortunately... They were not able to have biological children of their own, so they decided to adopt. They found two young kids unrelated to each other and adopted them both. A little boy named Jeremy and a little girl named Sheila. Growing up, the kids had everything they needed from private education to a great home life. From the outside, it looked like this was like a really perfect situ- situation. After high school, Sheila attended secretarial school to become a secretary. I didn't realize they had. I didn't
1: know you had to go to school to become a secretary. I didn't
0: either. Did you know there's also schools where you can learn to be a butler? And I think those actually still exist.
1: Butler schools?
0: Yeah. (laughs) I only know that from watching Southern Charm because one of the ladies on there has a butler and he actually went to Butler School.
1: Butler School.
0: Yeah. Anyway. What a scam. Meanwhile. Jeremy also went to school but had a hard time because he was just really ornery and had some behavioral issues. People didn't always like him because he was a bit of a prankster and just like kind of obnoxious, really. He would wear makeup around his dad just to upset his dad and just act out of control around his mother and really stress her out. For example, he would ride his bike around her in circles really fast just to get her riled up. And another time he released a bag of mice into his dad's secretary's car. What? And this secretary from the farm was in the family for years. And she'll come back into this story later. But yeah, I mean, just what? Why would a bag of mice? (laughs) That's awful. I would be
1: so pissed. I hate mice.
0: Yeah. So as you can see, he was just always doing things to aggravate his parents. And it got to a point where June and Neville just decided He needs to go to boarding school, so they shipped him off, and Jeremy went away to school, but this really upset Jeremy. He had a hard time making friends and felt like he was treated poorly by teachers. He eventually told some of his friends that he was adopted, and they used that against him, calling him a bastard, So resentment grew in Jeremy because he was starting to feel a little abandoned, and I'm not sure if he was aware of it at this point yet, but Jeremy was actually born to a student midwife who had an affair with a married army sergeant, and he was given up at six weeks old. But his biological parents went on to later get married and have more kids of their own. Like, they married each other, had more kids. And his biological father later became a senior staff member at Buckingham Palace. So if he was aware of that, I can only imagine how awful that would feel to be, like, the one kid that inconvenienced his parents before they went on to have more kids and a successful life together. But then again, I also know that you come to appreciate the ones that raised you. And if you can appreciate those people enough, then the ones who gave you up don't really matter. Yeah. So it's really hard telling. I guess we'll never really know. But anyway, Jeremy made it through boarding school and eventually graduated from college in 1982. After traveling to Australia and New Zealand on his father's dime, he got into a bit of trouble while he traveled once for stealing an expensive watch from a jeweler like I guess he broke into this jewelry shop and stole a watch. I was just
1: gonna say that was—you were about to pass by that. Like I get <laughs> that that's just like on his resume, but like that's a pretty big deal.
0: Yeah, I mean I, I'm a little surprised that if you broke into a jewelry shop, you wouldn't steal more than just a watch. But like I, I don't know the full story. I don't know what kind of jewelry shop this was. Like, I mean nothing makes it okay. But like I just want more context. But yeah. That's all I could really find. Huh. Anyway, um, some of his friends remember Jeremy boasting about smuggling heroin, but we don't know if that was true or not. It was just something that like he talked about.
1: If it walks like a duck,
0: and it it talks like, like a, a duck,
1: duck, and hangs out with ducks.
0: It's probably a duck. Amen. So anyway, after graduating, he moved back to his parents' farm, and as a gift, his dad actually bought him his own cottage just right down the road from their house, about a three minute drive away. Man,
1: these things are just so casual but massive. I know. Bought him a house. He got (laughs) in trouble for messing with heroin, and he also broke in a jewelry store.
0: Yeah, no big deal. His dad also provided him with his own car, but it was all contingent upon him working at the farm or on their campsite business. And although he did help out, he also started growing cannabis on the farm, which really displeased June, who's super religious. Mm -hmm. So Jeremy and his relationship with his parents was a little strenuous at times, but Sheila also remembered feeling a little inadequate at times as well. June was so religious that she felt like That Sheila felt like she sometimes couldn't live up to her mom's impossibly high standards. So Sheila felt like her mom was very disapproving of her because Sheila had interest in working as a model. But if June was disapproving of that, Sheila really caused her to blow a gasket when she got knocked up at 17. And here's just a side note about Sheila's backstory. She was actually born to the 18-year-old daughter of an archbishop who insisted that they give up the baby for adoption. So it's just interesting to see this kind of come full circle. Like she was born to an unwed teenage mother and then becomes an unwed teenage mother herself. Interesting. So Sheila had been dating this guy, Colin Caffle. And they ended up getting pregnant by surprise, and even though Sheila and Colin were serious together, June forced Sheila to get an abortion and never speak of the pregnancy to anyone. June was very disapproving of Sheila's relationship with Colin. One day she actually found them sunbathing naked in a field. And at this point, started Sheila, I'm sorry, June started referring to Sheila as the devil's child. So you can imagine what this probably did to Sheila and June's relationship. It began mm-hmm. deteriorating pretty rapidly. Mm-hmm. But Sheila and Colin, however, made it through that difficult time. And in 1977, they got married. Soon after they got married, they wanted to start a family, but they had a hard time getting pregnant, and Sheila suffered from multiple miscarriages. And it's not talked about enough just how devastating a marriage, or I'm sorry, a miscarriage can be at any point in a pregnancy. Miscarriages are incredibly common, but they can be so shattering and lonely for a pregnant mother. All too often, we don't talk about miscarriages because it's not usually encouraged to announce a pregnancy until after the risk of miscarriage goes down, which is like typically around the 12-week mark, or soon after you hear the baby's heartbeat. But the effects on a mother's mental health can be super damaging. Speaking from personal experience, I have had a miscarriage and it was traumatic. And I've always been a pretty transparent person, but having my miscarriage wasn't something that I spoke about until after I had two successful pregnancies. And I wish I would have talked more about it then just so I could have known that I wasn't alone and so other women would know that they weren't alone either. But 90%, 97% of our audience is female. And so if you're listening and you've been through a mar- miscarriage, just know that I am with you. You are not alone. Just had to put that out there. So anyway, all of that is just to say that Sheila really had a rough go getting pregnant, and when she finally did get pregnant with twin boys, she was put on bed rest during her fifth month of pregnancy. Unbeknownst to Sheila, though, Colin had begun having an affair while she was in the hospital, and he ended up leaving Sheila when their twin boys, Nicholas and Daniel, were only five months old, and they ultimately divorced in May of 1982. So after the divorce, Sheila's dad, Neville, bought her an an apartment so she could live near Colin, and he would be able to help raise the boys. Sheila had a variety of odd jobs. After she had the boys, she lived off welfare and worked as a waitress, a cleaning lady, and even did some nude photography. She became very insecure after having the boys and getting a divorce. Her relationship with June was just not good, and she started partying with friends who liked to do drugs, particularly cocaine, and they all slept around with older men. So her mental health continued on a steep decline when she was finally taken to the same psychiatrist who treated June back in the 50s. This doctor claimed that she was in an agitated state, paranoid and psychotic, She told them that she believed the devil had given her the power to project evil onto others and that she could make her sons have sex and cause violence with her. She
1: She went the opposite way of her mother or whatever her name is.
0: June. June, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it just, this whole story kind of just takes like a 180 Mm -hmm. and you don't expect this but yeah like she started you know her mental health started to decline and then it was just like it spiraled
1: Mm, fast
0: yeah so she called her boys the devil's children just as june called her and she said she believed she was capable of killing them or getting them to kill for her sheila ended up getting admitted and later diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder but after she was released and started coming for her outpatient appointments The doctor changed his diagnosis to just schizophrenia and began treating her with an antipsychotic drug.
1: And schizophrenia is nuts. That's where you like hear voices in your head, right? Yeah. And like you, like people who are schizophrenia, they're like the type of people who fight with themselves on the highway.
0: Well, yeah, you're saying that because we we happen to have someone in our town who
1: multiple who yeah. they'll like well, be walking yeah. down the road like screaming and fighting with those like those people. I'm not making fun They're of it untreated. because I know it's serious. That's untreated schizophrenia, right?
0: Most likely, yes. Yeah.
1: That's that's insanely sad. Can you imagine like that disease or whatever it is? Yeah. God, that would be like one of the worst things that could ever happen to oh, you.
0: Yeah, and I've heard it described as just a ton of voices going on in your head at the same time, and these voices I, that are like. Are telling you to do something crazy like
1: you can get on youtube and listen to like a schizophrenia like what's inside a person's head that has schizophrenia mm-hmm. and it is nuts it's yeah. scary
0: it's like a an, it's like an example of yeah. what it sounds like to have schizophrenia yeah and yeah um we actually this is kind of un, unrelated but related we played this game last night we had girls night at my house and we played this game where you put on these headphones and you have to try i can't think of what the the name was, but you have to try to guess what your partner is saying by reading their lips. And when you turn these headphones on, it sounds like there's just 10 people mumbling all this stuff to you. And that's instantly what it made me think of is like, this has to be what it's like to have schizophrenia. Just these crazy voices just talking to you. None of it makes sense. And you're trying to decipher it and it's just confusing. Mm -hmm. Sounds miserable to live that way untreated. So anyway, back on track. That at least gives you an idea of what Sheila was going through. So in March of 1985, Sheila suffered from another psychotic break when she believed that she was in direct communication with God and that certain people, including her boyfriend, were trying to kill her. So after this episode, she was placed on a new medication that also acted as a sedative, and her kids were removed from her to go live with their father, Colin. Sheila was allowed to have visits with her boys, and she would include her parents in these visits. So on Sunday, August 4th of 1985, Sheila and the boys arrived at White House Farm to spend the weekend with June and Neville. Employees of the farm remember seeing Sheila and the boys and recalled them as all being in really good spirits. On Tuesday, August 6th, June and Neville hosted a family dinner. Jeremy and Sheila are there, and of course, Sheila's boys are there too. During dinner, Jeremy said that his parents recommended that Sheila's boys be placed in like a daytime foster care with a local family. And Sheila didn't seem super bothered by this, maybe as a result of her medication, or maybe because she felt relieved of like having more help during the day. But this surprises me because as a mother, I think many of us would like detest the idea. Of our kids being taken away from us and placed in a foster home, even if it is just during the day. But then again, I don't take sedatives, so who knows what effect that would have on my reaction? It just, I just think it would hard be hard not to be offended by this, mm-hmm. you know. And her her relationship with her parents is already so strained that I imagine this would just be like a nail, or you know, like the last straw—the straw
1: that broke camel's back.
0: Yeah, so. At around 9.30 p.m. that evening, Jeremy left to go back to his cottage down the road. And soon after Jeremy left, Neville got a phone call from his secretary. This secretary, like I said, has been with the family for years. Her name is Barbara Wilson. And she recalled that phone call and remembered feeling like Neville seemed kind of off and like maybe a little agitated and that she could hear arguing in the background before Neville abruptly just hung up on her. So she felt like when she called him, she interrupted an argument. A little bit later, around 10 pm, June's sister Pamela called and spoke to June and Sheila. She didn't recall anything being out of the ordinary, just that Sheila seemed kind of quiet, but that June seemed pretty normal. Then, later that night at around three: thirty in the morning, Jeremy receives a phone call from Neville hysterically saying that Sheila had gone berserk and that she had a gun but after only a few seconds on that call, the call dropped. So Jeremy calls the police, and I have a clip from that phone call.
1: Hi, my name's Jeremy Bamber from Goldhanger. Uh, you've got to help me. Um,
0: my father's phone from White House Farm, and he sounded really frightened. Uh, he says, my, my sister's gone crazy and she's got a gun. But then the phone went dead. Um, it sounded well, like someone had cut the line. So the police tell him to go to the farm, and they will meet him there. And once police pull up, they notice that Jeremy is driving really slow, so they pass him, and they get there, like, before him. They arrive to the front of the house and pull out big megaphones and just start shouting at the house, asking if anyone is in there to come out now. They did this for, like, two hours, pleading with whoever they thought might be in the house, even though they weren't getting any responses except from the family's barking dog. But they did this because they were waiting for tactical firearms units to arrive. So while outside, police are asking Jeremy about what was going on with the family, and he told them that his sister had been receiving treatment for mental illness. And when they asked him why his dad would call him and not the police, Jeremy noted that their family has a reputation, that they've always tried to uphold, and that he probably just didn't want this sort of thing becoming public, which makes sense. He also told the police that while he was there earlier that day, he loaded a rifle because he thought he had rabbits outside eating on their garden, but he said he left that rifle on the kitchen table fully loaded with a box of ammo nearby. So he became worried that maybe Sheila got more upset about the idea of putting her kids in foster care, that she snapped and used the rifle on her parents, or even worse, her own children. So finally, at 7.54 a.m., the police used a sledgehammer to break in the back door. The door had been locked from the inside, and the key was still inside the lock. Inside, they found the bodies of June, Neville, Daniel, Nicholas, and Sheila, all dead from apparent gunshot wounds. So
1: she killed everybody and killed herself?
0: Mostly fired at close range and then laying on top of Sheila was the rifle Jeremy described using earlier that day.
1: Oh, my goodness.
0: Yeah. So a telephone was lying on one of the kitchen counters with its receiver off the hook. Next to it were some 22 caliber shells. Chairs and stools were overturned. Plates were broken on the floor. A ceiling light was shattered. And there was blood splatter on the walls and the floor. It appeared that there was like a huge struggle during this massacre. So, Neville was the only one found downstairs. He was found in the kitchen, dressed in his pajamas, and he had been shot eight times, six times to the head and face, all at close range. So, just so you know, and I know you don't have, like, a huge, you know, background in true crime, but usually when someone is shot multiple times like that, it's considered a crime of passion and i don't under i don't fully understand it but it's similar to like the lulu lemon murder when the girl was just savagely beat and it wasn't just like a yeah. one and done type thing like somebody passionately just like went into a full blown rage yeah so um and this is so wild but police concluded that he had actually been shot four times upstairs likely in his shoulder and elbow, but came downstairs where the struggle took place, during which he was hit four more times before finally succumbing to those injuries. Um, so...
1: He's a warrior. It,
0: yeah, just the idea that he withstood eight gunshots while tr- he tried to protect his family is just mind-blowing. Like, can you imagine this guy coming down the stairs with gunshot wounds? It's crazy. Yeah. During the struggle... He also sustained injuries like a fractured jaw, and his neck, teeth, and larynx were damaged. And I'm not sure if this was due to the gunshots or the fighting. Like, I don't know if he was hit with the gun. I I don't know. But the pathologist said that these injuries would render him unable to talk. He also had black eyes and a broken nose, linear bruising to his cheeks, lacerations to his head, linear type bruising to the right forearm bruising to the left wrist and forearm and three circular burn marks to the back the linear marks were likely caused by being hit with the gun itself so that's why i'm saying i don't know like what injuries were caused by the gun or like a physical attack
1: mm-hmm.
0: so the other victims were all found upstairs june was found in her nightgown on the floor of the master bedroom near the door she had been shot seven times and one shot was to her forehead right between her arms or her arms right between her eyes and it was shot from less than a foot away she was also shot on the right side of her head her lower neck her right forearm her chest and her knee Daniel and Nicholas were both found in their beds Daniel was shot five times in the back of the head, and Nicholas Nicholas was shot three times. And finally, Sheila. Sheila was found on the floor of the master bedroom with her mother. She had two bullet wounds under her chin, with one of them kind of on her throat. And the pathologist, Peter Vene- Venezes, Venezes? said that the injury to her throat had occurred from only three inches away, but that it would not have killed her instantly. So he testified that a person with this injury would be able to get up and walk around, but because she didn't have blood going down her nightgown, he believed that she never actually got up. But because of the bleeding inside her throat, he believed that this was the injury that occurred first, and then the other gunshot wound killed her instantly. So... Imagine that, like shooting, you know, shooting yourself once and it not working and then having to shoot yourself again.
1: You deserve it after all this, but God, that's horrible.
0: So it was immediately apparent to the police that this was a murder-suicide, and the media quickly ran with that theory. The day after the murder, the front page of the Daily Express was covered with Sheila's picture and her twin boys with the title, Suicide Girl Kills Twins and Parents. Within a couple days, police burned a lot of the blood-stained evidence before returning the keys to Jeremy, likely so that he wouldn't have to go back into the house and witness the bloodshed. Because I didn't mention this earlier, but when they came out of the house to tell Jeremy what happened, he had a violent reaction. Like, he was bawling. He almost vomited. He was screaming and hitting things. Like, he was just completely crushed. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't even know a better word for that. At the funeral for the family, Jeremy was so distraught that at times he had to be held up by his girlfriend, Julie Mugford. But then later, at the wake, some of his other family members noticed him laughing and making jokes.
1: I'm thinking of when you said he was driving slow.
0: And this was just kind of a red flag, um, according to his family. Like One of his cousins said that... uh, At the wake, when nobody appeared to be looking, Jeremy, like, looked up and had a huge grin on his face, and he described it as, like, a wide-mouthed frog, and so his cousin was just like, that's kind of bizarre, but, you know, you can't, the thing is, you can't um, blame someone for how they grieve, because I understand everyone grieves differently, and, you know, Jeremy was, like, about to inherit a ton of stuff, like, Money, property, businesses, everything. So, I mean, it's just something to think Keep about. Keep going. So, shortly after the funerals, Jeremy and Julie went to Amsterdam with a friend where he apparently bought a ton of pot. And the travel agent who sold him the ticket said that he appeared to be in really good spirits. Jeremy wasted no time in selling his family's belongings. He gave June's car to Julie's mom and tried to sell Neville's car for only 900 pounds. And I don't know what kind of car he had, so I don't know if that's appropriate or not. But He also tried selling nude photos of Sheila for 20,000 pounds to the Sun newspaper and went on another trip with a friend to Saint-Tropez. But because of the seemingly obvious theory of murder-suicide, much of the investigation was squandered. Like I said earlier, the police burned a lot of the bedding and carpet that had blood evidence on it. A detective picked up the rifle off of Sheila with his bare hands. The entire investigation was just completely botched because they had such tunnel vision in the beginning, believing that, there, that this was like no more than a murder-suicide, case closed. But a few days after the murder on August 10th, some of the Bammer family, like the extended family, came over to the White House farm to go over the family's estate with the executor Basil Cock. (laughs) That's his name. I'm sorry. I'm so immature. Basil Cock. So anyway, during that visit, one of the cousins, David Boutflower, found a silencer with rifle sights in the gun cupboard inside the house. David's father, sister, as well as Basil Cock and the farm's secretary all witnessed to this. But instead of alerting the police right away, they took it home with them. They found red paint and blood on the silencer and noticed that it appeared to have some damage to the surface of it. The police came and got the silencer two days later on August 12th, and they sent it off for forensic testing. One of the scientists found blood on the inside and outside of the silencer. The blood on the inside was found to be the same blood group as Sheila's, although it could have been a mixture of Neville and June's blood, because obvious, well, no, that wouldn't make sense. That just now clicked to me. If it was a mixture of Neville and June's blood, it shouldn't have anything to do with Sheila, because Sheila was adopted. Right. So, because my initial thought was like, okay, well, it could if it could be Sheila's, but it could be a mixture of theirs as their her parents, then that would make sense. But they're but not. since adopted, yeah. Okay, so anyway, um, this is important because it proves a pretty wobbly theory. If Sheila murdered the family with a silencer, why would she feel the need to take it off and put it away before later shooting herself? And if the blood is Sheila's, then obviously there's no way she could fatally shoot herself and then put the silencer back. Oh. Make sense? There's also an issue of the red paint on the silencer. In the kitchen, they found marks on um, in red paint on the underside of a mantel pa- mantelpiece. A sample taken from this mantelpiece matched the same layers of paint and varnish found on the paint on the silencer, indicating that the silencer had scratched the mantelpiece during the fight in the kitchen. So that would prove that the silencer was definitely on the gun. you know what I mean and then mm-hmm. someone took it off mm-hmm. And this might be glaringly obvious to some of you listening, but like I've said multiple times, Neville was a big dude. The idea that Sheila could just murder her whole family and then fend off and fight off a six foot four man in good physical shape seems a little far-fetched to me right The injuries found on him indicate that a serious physical struggle took place and there were no injuries found on Sheila other than the gunshots. So I just don't believe that Sheila had that type of strength. um, And I don't believe Sheila was the one doing it. Right. So on September 7th, a month after the murders, Julie Mugford, Jeremy's girlfriend changed her statement to police. Now telling them that Jeremy planned on killing his family all along to claim his inheritance. But why would she just now be telling police? Well, apparently, her relationship with Jeremy had been quite rocky. He told her he wanted to end things with her. And at one point during an argument three days prior to her changing her story, Jeremy received a phone call from another woman and was talking to this other woman right in front of Julie. So Julie smashed a mirror and slapped him. So he twisted her arm up her back and then got into this, like, physical altercation. And then three days later, she changed her whole story. She told police that he had been complaining about his family for quite a while and believed that his parents were trying to run his life. He also told Julie that Sheila would make a good scapegoat since she was mentally ill, He also said that he planned on entering the house through the kitchen window because the latch was broken and leaving through a different window that latched when it closed. So this would explain why the house was locked up and the key was left in the door from the inside. She also recalled that the police, when they were all there in front of the house the day of the murder, Jeremy pulled Julie aside and whispered to her, I should have been an actor. Jeremy was arrested the day after Julie's statement. He claimed that Julie was making it all up because she was just a woman scorned. He ended up getting released on bail, and this is when he took his trip to Saint-Tropez, and this is also when he tried selling his sister's nude pics. So he's just kind of like trying to do whatever he can at this point. He probably just knows he's screwed. Mm -hmm. But when he returned to England on the 29th, he was arrested and charged with all the murders. His trial lasted 18 days and the judge told the jury that there were three crucial points. And I actually want to hear your take on these. One, did they believe Mugford or Bammer? Two, were they sure that Sheila was not the killer who then committed suicide? And three, did Neville call Bammer in the middle of the night? So, real quick, about that last one. Did Neville call Bammer in the middle of the night? So, the theory is, if he really did call him, then obviously that places Jeremy at his house. Mm -hmm. And it does show a call going out, but there's no way to prove if Neville made that call or if Jeremy did. Because if Jeremy went to the house, killed them, and then picked up the phone to create an alibi, then there's no way of knowing Called himself. Called himself. Yeah. Yeah. And then um, if they believed Julie or Jeremy. I mean, obviously they're kind of both... Julie had been suspecting Jeremy for a while, Mm -hmm. and she would confront him about it and ask him if he had anything to do with it. And he would get really defensive and say no. But if he says those things and makes those comments like, I should have been an actor, then why would it take you a month? Right. You know what I mean?
1: She was an accomplice, though, don't you think?
0: Right. That's kind of what I was starting to think, was like... She, and maybe
1: not, like, involved in it as accomplice, but at least knew about it.
0: Yeah. So, actually, there was another story of when the campsite business was broken into, and she told the police that Jeremy had planned and staged this break-in, and that Julie was the one that broke in, and he, like, set it up for Julie to break in and steal, I think it was, like, a thousand bucks from the from the campsite business. And then she told the police this. So when the police asked Jeremy about it, he confessed and said it was true, but it was only because he was trying to prove to Neville that they needed a better security system. So, like, that already makes me question her character as Both well. Both of their characters. Both of them, yeah. for sure. But de- but also hers. Yeah. You know?
1: And this, the silencer piece kind of gives the whole thing away, doesn't it?
0: In my opinion, I think it does. I mean, I you mean, had the-
1: you had to put it back in the cabinet.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, what would be the point of that, you know? Like... In my opinion, I think Jeremy used the silencer to kill everyone in the house without waking up the others. Like put the silencer Daniel back. Daniel and Nicholas were both found in their beds, so they were killed while they slept.
1: Right. Then put the, put the uh, silencer back and then went and killed her. Yeah. And put set the gun on her.
0: Or, yeah, or killed her and then took the silencer off and put it away. Because right. if the silencer were on the gun, it would have been too long for her to physically shoot herself. Okay, yeah. Yeah, because it was like a long rifle. Yeah. So, yeah. And then what was the other one? Oh, were they sure that Sheila was not the killer who then committed suicide? So, I mean, yeah. that's, yeah. My, that's
1: my case, I think.
0: Uh, that ties back in with the whole silencer issue. Right. Yeah.
1: Interesting. So, so so what ended up happening to him?
0: So on October 28th, after nine hours of deliberation, the jury found Jeremy Bammer guilty and sentenced him to five life terms. He has filed appeals, but they've all been denied. There is there have been campaigns in his innocence because a lot of people like I mean there is way more information. I try to keep these episodes short. So if you're interested in more information, you can go on Wikipedia online. There's so many like websites and articles about this whole story but there's also a drama series on hbo max now called white house farm and it's about this whole thing
1: did it just come out
0: yeah it just came out well i think it just came out i haven't seen it yet but i'm gonna watch it now just after covering yeah. this story the, uh, the
1: documentaries are always fun because they're like a longer more detailed version of of, of the synopsis you yeah give,
0: right? i'm just here to give you the gist yeah the gist of it. But there are, I know, a lot of opinions about this case. Some people believe in Jeremy's innocence and some people believe in his guilt. So I do want to know what you think. I want you to leave it in the comments when I post this um, on our Instagram page, mama.mystery. Also, we have a giveaway going on, so you want to check out that as well. But tell me what you think of this case, because this one, I mean...
1: I think he's guilty. What do you think?
0: I think he's guilty. Yeah, I'm, but I'm interested. I say that because I'm interested in hearing what you all have to say. Those of you who think that maybe he's not guilty, I want to hear that evidence. Maybe if there was something I missed or I haven't read yet, like tell me what you think. Or what even I just be your missing. logic
1: behind it. Like, yeah. or just your
0: logic, because I'm genuinely intrigued. Like, I want to have civil conversations about people I disagree with. So yeah. I, I truly am interested in seeing if you, if your opinion differs from mine. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, go. Leave I like a the ones, I
1: like these ones that have the curveballs.
0: The curveballs. I like. Yeah. I just
1: there's always like this really like aha moment, and I enjoy that.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of people do too. Thanks again to Lydia for recommending this case because um, I had not. Well, actually, I had heard about it, but I hadn't like dove Roman. deep into it until you recommended it. So thank you. Check out our giveaway. We're giving away this really good smelling candle and a true crime junkie hoodie. Um, so go check that out on our Instagram.
1: Go Chiefs, Mama. Go Chiefs. Mystery. Out.
0: Bye.
1: Tech Nina. Kansas City.
0: You ready? You ready? Three, two, one, go. Welcome to the King. We flaunt it, hate and we shun it, no competition, the opposition fake, I don't think they really want it, loud is the recipe, loud sitting next to me, no doubt, now we are proud that we get to see KC Chiefs come and break these geeks, make them taste these cleats, welcome to the Red King. the beast, bring them, mop them up and stop them got the heat, sting up. you hot when we stop ya, drops when he rock rock, got blocked in cast out ball in my city live, but I find a raw one to get beside, my lucky numbers are 15, 10, 87, 29, 7, 50, 95, 55, Red Kingdom. Yeah. Red Kingdom. Welcome to the.